The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. For all of you who are in the choir, that was beautiful. Thank you for that. I, yeah. It doesn't sound like that when I sing. As was mentioned, I also went to a Christian college, and so because of that, I want to say just how impressed with all of you I am. I went to a rival institution that I won't name that's located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania for my undergrad work. I know, I know. And I will say, in my time there, I did not make it to very many Monday chapels, so way to go for all of you who are here this morning. I am really thrilled to be here with you this morning, and this morning I want to, for a few moments, excuse me, uh, I want to invite you to a back room in the city of Jerusalem on the night of the very first Easter. And so I'm going to invite you to pray as we prepare to listen to this moment in the story of Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh God, whether we arrive here this morning joyful, heartbroken, filled with faith, filled with shame, filled with questions, we pray that as we listen to these ancient words, we would hear you addressing us. So guide us, oh God, by your word and your Holy Spirit, that in your light, we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, if you would, listen for a moment to these words from the book that we love, from John chapter 20. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked, For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Friends, this is God's word. In July of 2008, my wife and I drove a budget rental truck into Center City, Philadelphia, to, with, with lots of hopes and lots of fears, set about to start a new church community that would make sense for people that are not church people in the heart of Philadelphia. We knew no one when we arrived in Philadelphia, and so one of the very first things that we did, other than 
pray a lot was to begin meeting our neighbors, to meet the people among whom we'd seek to, we'd seek to gather a church community. On our left in the 550 square foot apartment building that we lived in were two friends named Steve and Scotty. Steve and Scotty paid the bills by bartending, and in their free time, they ran, they spent most of their time running an event around many of the bars and clubs in downtown Philadelphia called the Drunk Spelling Bee, which is more or less exactly what that sounds like. <laughs> to my right, one of the first neighbors that we met was a man named Tom. Tom was a university professor. He was a tall, lanky man with a quick smile and a quicker wit. He was an intelligent man. One of the very first conversations that I had together with him, I asked him curiously what he was, what he was reading. And Tom, as it turned out, was a, was a devotee of aggressive Richard Dawkins-esque New Atheism books. And he went on and on about how much he, he loved all of this stuff. And he told me in passing, he said, I just think that anybody that went to college and believes that there's a God or anything like that is an idiot. And literally in the next breath said, you never told me what it is that you do anyway. <laughs> and so I just told him, Tom, I'm a professional idiot. <laughs> Across the street from us was a young couple named Jesse and Neely. Jesse and Neely were vaguely spiritual people who had never actually met a Christian before. And I remember as we set about meeting these neighbors and looking around at the people that were around us and adjusting to life in a major city. Neither my wife nor I are from urban in environs. Her, uh, her family growing up experience was that of living on a farm where her nearest neighbor was a mile and a half from her front door. Uh, I remember a night in which we were laying in our bed, in our bedroom, in our apartment. Uh, we didn't know how to pick an apartment, and so we picked one with paper-thin walls that was right next to what, right next to a downtown street lamp. And so we literally couldn't get it to be dark in our bedroom at night. Uh, and we were smelling the weed smoke drifting through the drywall to one side of us while listening to all of the things happening in the apartment to the other side of us. And my wife turned to me and said, why are we here? Like, what are we doing here? Did we get the signals wrong in some way that we, of all people, wound up here? That's a good question, actually. And I think that if you're like us, you ask that question of your own life sometimes too. What am I doing here? This is the same question that Jesus' first band of friends and followers wrestled with on the evening of the first Easter, and here Jesus gives them and us his answer. And so I simply want to invite you to eavesdrop on this moment, on that night, to listen to what Jesus says to them. In the selection from Scripture that we heard together a moment ago from John 20, it's the evening of the very first Easter. And Jesus' disciples are hiding behind locks and doors. They are paralyzed with fear. All of the life has been knocked right out of them. And then, even though the door is locked, even though some of them have watched Jesus breathe his last with their own eyes, there is this moment of ambushed astonishment. Suddenly, 
somehow, Jesus is there. He's, he's there in the room. The first disciple sees him and thinks that maybe he's hallucinating. But everyone seems to be seeing the same thing. And then Jesus shows them his hands and his side. Jesus' wounded hands and side are the first and most basic documents of his resurrection, of the event that changes everything forever. Jesus shows up in that room bearing the scars of his battle with sin, evil, and death. We give Jesus scars, but Jesus gives us peace. We wound him, he in turn heals us. Later on, one of, the, one of the other early Christian leaders, a man named Paul, in writing to a young church community, talks about this cosmic mystery in Colossians 1 and says uh, that through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And so having one cosmic peace, Jesus turns up in that room and says to them and says to us, Peace be with you. Now, to us that just sounds like, hi, hello, what's up? But Jesus, I think, actually intended much more. Uh, there's an echo here of the Hebrew idea of shalom. Shalom doesn't just mean peace. Uh, shalom means something more like wellness, wholeness, all things being well and all manner of things being well. Thanks to Jesus' death and resurrection, God gives them and us shalom. Because of those scars and that side, all is well and all manner of things will be well. I want to invite you first just to put yourself in that room. To see those scars. To bring with you into that room your guilt, your shame, your fear, your confusion, and listen to Jesus say to you, because of what I have done, peace be with you. There's this fascinating moment in what follows in which Jesus breathes on his disciples. There is an echo in this moment of the stories that begin the scriptures in the book of Genesis. Uh, in all sorts of fascinating ways, John, when John tells us Jesus' story, he's riffing on the book of Genesis and retelling the Genesis creation story with Jesus at the center of all of it. Uh, in the Genesis story, God sculpts human beings from the humus and breathes the breath of his own life into them. Here, Jesus, after renewing the whole cosmos, gives us his own life when we were dead in sin. As our first parents turn their back on the living God, they hear God calling to them as the evening wind blows in the Garden of Eden. Now, on the evening of the new creation's very first day, a different wind sweeps through the room. The healing breath of God's own spirit come to undo the long effects of your primal rebellion and mine. And so in a mysterious way that escapes our ability to describe, Jesus actually gives us the stuff of his own life. But in that moment, Jesus not only gives his followers the stuff of his own life, his peace, his spirit, Jesus also gives to us his mission. Jesus says to 
his confused and frightened followers, just as the Father has sent me, so I send you. There are north of 40 times in the Gospel of John that Jesus is described as being the one who is sent by the Father. But now, Jesus sends his disciples to continue his mission. Jesus says to them, and in turn says to us, us, as the Father sent me to showcase the heart of the living God, as the Father sent me to love the unlovable, as the Father sent me to offer God's scandalous forgiveness to people who have assumed that they long ago sinned away their day of grace, as the Father sent me to love the unlovable, as the Father sent me to absorb the sting of death, to retain sin, to absorb the heartbreak and darkness and death of the world and not sting back. So, Jesus says, I now send you to do the same thing. In mirroring fashion, Jesus sends us, his, his frightened friends, to go and do the same. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends us. This is the sense in which the New Testament talks about you and I, people who are, uh, who are follower of Jesus and a part of the church community, as part of the body of Christ, a member in the body of Christ. Uh, when the scriptures say that you are a member in the body of Christ, that does not mean like being a member of the choir or being a member of a racket club. But that, that's intended in the sense that, uh, that your leg or your arm is a member of your body. It's talking about you as a body part of the very presence of Jesus here and now in the world. This is what you and I are here for. To embody the life and mission of the risen Jesus Christ here and now. now this, is how, uh, this is how we talk about that. In the, in the family of churches that Evan and I are a part of. We, uh, we say that our communities exist to live and speak and serve as the very presence of Jesus in the neighborhoods and places that we're a part of. This is what we're here for, to live and speak and serve as the very presence of the risen Jesus right here. First, you and I are called to live as the very presence of the risen, alive Lord Jesus Christ right here and now. This is what we're called to together as a community. Now, this doesn't turn up in the way that we often hear these, hear these words in English, but in the passage that we heard together, all of the yous when Jesus addresses his disciples are plural. So if we were, for example, translating this passage into the idiom of, into the, idiom of the South, Jesus would say, all y'all have been sent just as the Father has sent me, so I send all y'all. Or if we were in the, in the Pennsylvania portion of our fair state between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, and we were translating it into, into local idiom, we would say, use guys, all use guys have been sent as the Father has sent me. This is what Jesus is saying. This is a fascinating thing. Alone among the world's major religious teachers, uh, Jesus does not leave behind a book. Jesus leaves behind a family. Uh, Jesus intends that you and I, here and now, be his living book. 
We ought to be the kind of community that only makes sense if the tomb of Jesus is empty. We ought to be the kind of community that only makes sense if the tomb of Jesus is actually empty. In a moment in time in which, uh, in which when a relationship is difficult, we tend to just unfriend, resent, and stay away. Uh, we're called to, to move toward reconciliation, to move towards forgiveness when it's hard and not easy. Uh, in a moment in time in which, we, uh, in, which in the neighborhood in, in which I live, people tend to be, uh, to be really generous with their bodies and really stingy with their money. Uh, we say followers of Jesus are called to be really stingy with their bodies and really generous with their money. Uh, maybe one way you can pull these words into your life is to, is to think about this. What could it look like uh, for your community here to live in such a way that only makes sense if Jesus has actually risen from the dead? That's what we're called to. Uh, second, uh, we're called to serve as the very presence of Jesus. And one thing that our church right now is doing uh, that, we, that, we just, uh, that we just debuted yesterday in worship uh, is a project that we'll do uh, from now through Easter weekend called the Easter Outreach Project. Uh, Our church will pull together some 75 or so other Christian churches and ministries and organizations of all kinds around Metro Philadelphia to work on this project together. Uh, Here's why. A number of the most hungry zip codes, the most food-starved zip codes in the United States of America today are actually in Philadelphia. And so, uh, our, and so our church, together with the, the Church of Jesus Christ in Metro Philadelphia, uh, in, in lots of different ways, will raise about $120,000 and mobilize several thousand people uh, to deliver 10,000 meals to families in those food-starved zip codes on Easter weekend in, resu- in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Uh, because we know <clears throat> that we have neighbors for whom, unless someone demonstrates it for them. They have every reason to believe that God has walked off from them a long time ago. Now, how, how will someone who goes asleep hungry every night come to believe that there is a God in the universe that cares about him? You and, and me and the community of Jesus Christ. When When you deliberately exhibit the compassion of Jesus, you demonstrate the good news that God loves this world, hasn't abandoned it, and has promised to heal it. Just as Jesus is God's compassion in person to us, we're called to be Jesus' compassion in person to the communities that we're a part of. You and I, we're called to live and serve as the very presence of Jesus and to speak as the very presence of Jesus. Jesus commissions not just those disciples, but all of these disciples to in turn tell the story of his scandalous grace. As you and I, we use our voices to speak the good news of Jesus, Jesus makes us his own voice. Now, I know that uh, this is a deeply unfashionable part of Christian faith and practice. Proselytizing is not a popular thing in the neighborhood that I live in. And in some ways, that's entirely understandable. 
I remember years ago when I served as a pastor of a, of a, a large church in a very Christianized area in the state of Michigan. One evening, one evening being at a Panera Bread trying to, trying to finish some work that I was doing and just pirating their Wi-Fi for a few moments. And being approached by a, being approached by a tall, awkward man in pleated khakis uh, who, when there was nearly no one else in the Panera Bread at all, ambled up to my table and asked me if he could talk with me. And so I said, well, sir, I'm, I'm doing some work, but sure, yeah, we, we can talk. So he, he then proceeded to get out this weird Rubik's Cube thing that had pictures of the story of Jesus' life on it. And he, and he, launched, into a, he launched into a speech with no further engagement with me at all about, uh, about Jesus, and then came to the end of that after about 10 minutes, and he said, well, sir, would you like to become a Christian right now? And I said, well, listen, I've got great news for you, sir. I'm in. I'm, in. I'm, already, I'm already good. I'm in. I'm on, we're on the same team. And he, he, in response, gave me a once-over, like look down and up, very skeptically, as if to say, really? And I said, well, I'm, I'm serious. I'm a, I'm a Christian, and I'll do you one better. I'm even a pastor on top of that. And so, so he leaned forward and said to me, well, do you think there's anyone else here that I need to get? And I felt so horrified by that entire experience that in, re in response, all that I could do was just lie to him. I just said, listen, it's okay. I already got them all when I came here. And he was like, okay, and walked right out the, right out the door. Now, uh, if you have ever had a Christian person be weird and awkward with you, I am not excusing that. But what I am saying is that one of the beautiful parts about living in a deeply diverse and pluralistic society is that in reality, all of us are converting and being converted all the time. All of us are evangelists for the things that we love. Corporations realize this even if you don't realize this. Large corporations employ highly paid executives that they call evangelists to spread the good news that burnt overpriced coffee, for example, is at hand and available, or that sleek and overpriced computer products are available and at hand. What is the very first thing that you do when he says yes to a second date? Or you get an A on your paper? Or you, or you make a grade? Or you secure the internship that you have been dreaming of? What's the very first thing that you do? You tell everyone that you know. You start dating someone else and some of your girlfriends say to you, Sheila, I don't know, he seems weird, you know. Uh, and you say like, no, 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 you don't understand him like I do. What are you doing? You are being an evangelist for someone that you care about. Now, what if it were the case that life was not merely a meaningless rut ending in a grave? What if it were the case that your deep longings and mine for purpose and, and meaning, spiritual reality, justice? What if those things weren't merely a neurological, a neurological illusion, but were hardwired in you because you have, made by, you have been made by the God you're created for? And what if that God was willing to come close to us and show us what he's like in the person of Jesus? Well, that that would be really good news. And that would be good news worth talking about. So maybe, uh, maybe as you listen to these words of Jesus, 
you could ask yourself, what, what could it look like for me in the, in the communities that I'm a part of right now to live and to speak and to serve as the very presence of Jesus? It will be 10 years ago, this coming Sunday, since the church community that we, that we sought to gather held its very first worship service. And now, at the corner of 17th and Sansom Streets in Center City, Philadelphia, there is a community of all sorts of deeply broken people who have found themselves ambushed by the grace of Jesus. And that church isn't there because we had lots of resources or great marketing ideas. We didn't have any of those things at all. That church is there because the risen Jesus has seen fit to woo people, to work, and to transform people through his grace, through a really flawed, frightened, ordinary group of people who sought to live and speak and serve as his very presence. This is why you're here and why I'm here. One of the most powerful images that I carry with me of what Jesus invites us to in these words I experienced a number of years ago when I led a group of people from the church that I, I served at the time to, uh, to visit some international partners of our churches in the city of Johannesburg in South Africa. Uh, if you know the history of that place at all, you know that it's been deeply affected by, by, by racism and, uh, and apartheid, apartheid policies which, uh, which, kept, uh, which kept black South Africans uh, deeply in poverty. Uh, they've, they've dealt with uh, violence as a result of that for a long, long time. And so the, the group that I was with as we were there, we had the opportunity to visit one of the, one of the largest shantytown townships uh, where, uh, where black South Africans were, were forced to call their home for a long time is a place called Soweto. And while we were in Soweto, we had the opportunity to visit uh, what's now a very famous, very famous church. It's a, a Roman Catholic Christian church called uh, the Church of Regina Mundi. And in this church, uh, we, we got a tour from one of its, one of its leaders. It, the church became uh, internationally renowned because in the, uh, in the 70s, in which uh, when apartheid violence was, was at its highest, uh, that church building was a haven for young uh, black South Africans who sought to go to school and then go back home in peace without being attacked. And there was one particular day, uh, our tour guide told us, when, uh, when white police officers stormed into that church and actually fired live ammunition inside the church building. You can, if you were to visit the place, you could still see bullet holes in the communion altar and, and at some of the beams in the top of the sanctuary section of the building. And as the, as the tour guide was telling us the story, uh, we arrived at the back of the sanctuary and we saw a, a statue of Jesus that was at, the, that was at the, the doors leading in and out of the sanctuary. And the statue of Jesus had, had a picture of Jesus as the, as the good shepherd depicted, but both of his hands were missing. He didn't have hands. And so we asked him, why do you have a statue of Jesus with no hands in your church? I said, on that particular day, when police stormed the building, one police officer accidentally shot a hand of Jesus off. And then with a wide, ironic South African toothy grin, he smiled and said, and so we just evened it up and fixed the other side. And then he told us that in reality, after that attack, as that community 
experience just a resolved sense of their calling to demonstrate the compassion of Jesus in a violent, poverty-stricken, and war-torn place. They took that statue, which had been in a different place in the sanctuary, removed the other hand of Jesus, and then placed it where people would walk in and out of the sanctuary so that every time that they entered or exited that worship space, they would see this image that showed them what it was that they were called to be in that place. They said, we, we see ourselves as called to be the hands of Jesus in this place that needs the love of Jesus so deeply. That's why we're here. Friends, that's why, that's why we're here, and that's why you're here. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you that your Son, Jesus, gives us his hard-won peace, the stuff of his own life, and entrusts to us his own mission. I pray for this community of students that you would give them, give us grace to live, speak, and serve. It's the very presence of your risen son here and now. We pray all these things in his good name. Amen.